It's, um, it's amazing to be together. My name's John. I'm part of the team here. Um, if I've not met you, then it's great to meet you from here to there, and maybe we can meet in the bar later on. But it's great to be together. We're finishing up, as Pete said, this mini-series on what it means to be a compassionate, a courageous, and a creative community. What does it mean for us to inhabit these three things? And it comes from um, one of the first verses in the Bible, the 27th to be precise. In Genesis 1:27, it says that we are made in the image of Imago Dei and the image of our God creator. This is what we are made in. And, and what we're trying to do over these three weeks, this is the last one, is we're trying to say, who, who is this God that we center our lives around? What is he like? What's his character? What does he look like? What does he feel like? And therefore, what does that mean for us? Like, would we act differently? Would we look different? Would we be different with one another if we really understood and got to grips with who this God is? And as we gaze upon him, that will transform who we are. That's the whole point about what this, these three weeks are about. So last, oh, two weeks ago, Pete walked us through this. Many in the room will have seen this. Um, for those who haven't, let me just really quickly walk through this, that our story is one that moves from creation to decreation to recreation. So just to walk through this, God forms and creates a world. We're in perfect relationship with him. That's the beginning of our story. That's what we read about in Genesis 1. And yet continually and daily, if we were to draw ourselves into this, we decide to live a different way, right? We center ourselves around our own desires, our own pathways, instead of centering ourselves around worshiping God, Yahweh God. And this is depicted perfectly in the story of Adam and Eve. This is precisely what they do. And we, we choose that route time and time again. So God says, well, what, what, what is it going to look like for me to rescue my people? He gives himself to his creation in the form of Jesus. That's what he does. And he says, I want to suffer with you. I want to sow in tears with you. I want to be with my creation. And he comes into this world so much that he will go to the cross, that he will die for you. That he will get rid of the rubbish stuff that you've done so that you can be in perfect relationship with him. That's the story that we're part of. And we are being drawn into partnership in this journey of renewal towards the end of the story, which is perfect union with him again. That's where we're heading. It's an amazing story. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why we're all in the building. We have an extraordinary, extraordinary God. And Jesus perfectly depicts this in his life, his death and resurrection. And then we as the church are called to model that. That we have a God of compassion who will come into the world. What does it look like for us to do that? What does it look like for us to stand with people in their suffering? Jesus goes to the cross with courage. What does it look like for us to be a courageous community? How do we do that? How do we boldly share our faith? But not only that, in everything that we do, how do we do it with courage, with conviction about who we are? How do we get in touch with our fragility and our vulnerability and and be courageous? And finally, how do we be the creative community that we were called to be? As God is on this journey of renewal, he, he asks us, can you help me do this? Can you partner with me as we see our world become more and more what it was called to be? Back to that creation at the beginning. This is the story that we are part of. And this is the journey of these three weeks. And the wonder of God is that he says, I want you to partake in this. I want you to be part of that story. And Anna last week looked at what it means to be a courageous community. And she said, this is so often our view of what it means to be courageous, right? It's just like muster up the energy, do whatever it takes, just the war cry from the front. Come on, let's just do it. And she said, it doesn't look anything like that. What Jesus models for us is is vulnerability. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before going to the cross, he's in touch with his own vulnerability. It's only from that place that he can be truly courageous. 
And she encouraged us to do exactly the same thing. The week before that, Pete um, talked about creativity, and he talked about what it, um, this, the church as having a mustard seed of creativity in the culture around it. That when you sow that seed in the wider culture, that only in that soil, as we nurture it, as we soil it, we would see that infect and affect the rest of culture. That's what we're called to do. And if you can imagine just how hard it is to get that mustard seed, it's so, so small, just on one finger like that. Johnny, our student pastor, just found a really helpful image of someone who just tried the, the other shot, which is the one just between the two fingers, and this is as far as they got. It's a harder one now. It's really hard to do that. I'm just going to leave that there. It's going to ripple out. You're going to realize what it actually looks like. Some people are getting it. Some people are confused. Some people are disgusted. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's move on. So this week... This week, we are trying to ask the question, what does it look like for us to be a compassionate community? What does it mean for us to inhabit the nature of a compassionate God? So we're going to be doing two things. We're going to be gazing upwards towards who who is this God? What is he like? Who does he say he is? How does he act with his creation? How does he act with his people? And therefore, what does that mean for us? How do we do the same thing? How do we mirror that? What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God in Margot Day? So let's start by looking at Exodus 3. If you've got a Bible with you or in front of you, turn it to Exodus 3 or give it a Google on your phone. Um, we're going to be using some of the first uh, verses there. So just to give you some context about what we're going to be doing tonight, and then, and then I'll kind of run into it. We're going to just be tracking through Scripture a little bit of who, who God says he is. What, what does he say about himself? Old Testament, New Testament, in the person of Jesus, what kind of stories does Jesus say about who this this Father God is? And then we're going to be trying to turn to each other and say, well, what does that mean for us? How do we do this stuff really well? So Exodus 3, we join the story of the Israelites, God's chosen people. We're kind of early in in what we know about Moses' life right now. Um, And he's tending a flock, the flock of his family. God appears to him in a bush. Many of us will know this story that just bursts into flames, like inextricably just burst into flames. It says this in verse 2, if you can have it in front of you. It says, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, quote, I will go over and see this strange sight. Seems like a sensible thing to do. Why the bush does not burn up, very strange. And God says to him, Moses, Moses, I am here. I am with you. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground right now. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am the the God of your ancestors. He's saying to him, just be aware. I am the God that you know about. Yahweh God. This is a profound moment that we're about to encounter. And this is where we pick up the story. It says this. The Lord said, from verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, all the Zites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. And we have this beautiful encounter straight after that where Moses is is almost kind of wrestling with God. He's like, that sounds amazing. That's a beautiful vision, but I can't do any of that. Who am I? What right do I have to do that? What gifts do I have in the locker? I've got none of that. And God said, you're getting it all wrong. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. I'm telling you to do this stuff. 
I, Yahweh, God, have all the resources that you need. And we want to ask that same question, like so often when we think about what it means to be compassionate, courageous, creative, whatever word you want to use in terms of a community, we often say, well, how do we muster up? What kind of programs, what kind of structures do we put in place? And that we might inhabit some of that stuff. And maybe it will look a little bit like God. But let's just give it our best shot. And God's saying, no, no, it doesn't. that's not it at all. It's who am I? Who are you focusing on? Are you focusing on yourselves or are you focusing on me? And we want to just spend some time focusing on him. And I just want us to notice three things from this passage. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've seen it. God sees it. I've come down. God acts. He doesn't just see from a distance. He acts. I've come down. I'm with you right now, Moses. I'm with you. So now go. And he asks us to go and mirror it. Another passage, if you flick on a few more chapters into chapter 34. Um, We're up Mount Sinai now. We're still with Moses. And he's about to get this download from God. A download about who he is, how they live life, that kind of thing. Um, And it's just to give you a kind of... Um, heads up, this is the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible. In other words, later on in Scripture, they keep coming back to this moment about an example of who God is. What's he like? What does he say about himself? And that's important because it's going to mean that this is quite profound. We need to, re- to focus in on who God says he is because Scripture keeps coming back to it. So this is where we pick it up. Verse 6, it says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, he is compassionate and gracious. The first two things we know about who he is, he is compassionate and gracious. The self-revealed name of who he is, I'm compassionate and gracious. And let's just remember that names in this culture, they're just, they weren't accidents, it, it, it was something about your identity, the very person that you were, about your destiny, what you were going to become. This is profound. It's not an accident that these things come first or that he, he self-reveals himself as these two things. And we're just going to dive into the language for the moment. Any Hebrew scholars in the room? That's such good news for me. Oh, no, there is one. Okay, that I'm now as terrified as I was in the morning service. Um, let's see how this goes. There's two words that, that mean compassionate graces here that we see in the Hebrew. Rachum. We Hanun. Okay, Rachum we Hanun. Turn to the person next to you, say Rachum we Hanun. That's nice, that's nice. There's phlegm kind of just coming out right now. It's, it's lovely to see. Um, if you haven't met the person next to you, it's a great way to meet them as well. Rachum we Hanun. And these two words, they go together. When we read them in the Hebrew, they, they're paired together, as many of the, the words in this passage are. And there's a reason for that, which is that they're self-illuminating of each other. They say something about what the other one means. They're meant to come together. They're meant to be paired. So if we look at each one in turn, rachum, this word compassionate, means um, like an identity, a feeling almost. Like God is compassionate. That's his very nature is that he's compassionate. But gracious on the other side, hanun, hanun, we got there, is like an, is an action word. He can't help but act out of grace. He's compassionate and gracious. He, he is compassionate, and yet he can't help but act out of that compassion. He moves in compassion. 
These two things come together time and time again. And again, just to zoom in on Rechum, it means um, it comes from a root word which means like a mother's womb or a woman's womb. And it's trying to give us some understanding of the, the feeling of compassion, what the, the kind of depth of what it actually is trying to get at. Um, and uh, it's trying to, yeah, draw on, on what is it actually, what's that relationship like? We, Joe and I, um, who's my wife, we had a little baby girl, Nella, about a year ago, just over a year ago. And she was a little bit early, a few weeks early. She kind of caught us really by surprise, which was good fun. And we went to hospital, and it was this kind of scary few hours. Um, and eventually she, she was born, and she was totally fine. But because she was so early, she had to be in a ward for a little bit away from us. And we had this, this really precious window, two or three minutes, where we were together as a, as a family of three. And then they had to wheel her out the operating theater. They had to wheel her into her own unit. And I can't begin to describe or try and explain what that feeling is like. And that's just as a parent, as a dad. For Joe, it was like, amplify that by a million. She just, it was this, this relationship with this tiny little baby who we'd never met before. But it was so strong. That's just a glimpse of this compassion that God would have for his creation, that he would have for you, that he would have for me. He, he loves you. He, he desperately doesn't want to be disconnected from you. That's the, just a glimpse of some of that pain. And then Hanani cannot help but be moved to compassion. He cannot help but it be moved into an action of grace. These two things come together with God continually. Compassionate heart, act of grace. Compassionate heart, act of grace. He is compassionate and yet he can't help but give himself in action. These two things come again and again. And this is shown no more, no, no more clearly than in the person of Jesus. He is compassionate. If you go back to that slide we were looking at right at the beginning of creation, decreation, recreation. He is the very act of compassion by God. He is compassionate. He embodies what it means for God to be compassionate. That he would give himself for his people. That he would give himself so that he could suffer with his people. That's what we're talking about when we look at Jesus. And that's kind of an aside because uh, we want to look at two specific stories, but I just want us to get to grips of, of who this person is. He is compassionate. So let's just focusing on two stories. If you look at Luke 15 in your Bible, flick through a whole chunk of um, Scripture to Luke 15. And Jesus is trying to tell a story, a parable, that's, that's going to give an indication of the kind of God um, that we have, the kind of Father that he has. And many will know it. it's the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, really. And just to give you some context, there are, there are two sons, and uh, the younger one asks for his inheritance. And essentially what that means in that culture is, I, I wish you were dead. The reason it means that is because he's saying, I, I don't really care about your well-being from now until when you do actually die and I would, and I would um, get that inheritance. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want it now. I'm hungry. I'm greedy. I just want it now. I don't really care about what the impact is on you. And the father, out of compassion, really, just set, um, divides everything he has, the whole inheritance, to both of those sons. And the younger one goes off. He has a party life. He does all the wrong things, all the things that you look on a list and think, that's just so stupid, so unwise. Has he not read scripture? All this kind of stuff. He goes and does it all. And he's eventually stranded, orphaned, if you like, in a distant land, a far-off land, and he suddenly hits the bottom of the barrel, doesn't quite know what to do, except go back to the father. He goes back to his father, and he rehearses this big apology. 
I'm so sorry, I've done all the wrong things. He, you know, as you can imagine, you'd think, oh my goodness, my dad's just going to be absolutely furious with me. Not only did I do that incredibly offensive thing at the beginning, but I've squandered it all. What have I got in the tank to now go back to him and say, can we be in relationship again? Anyway, this is where we pick up the story. So he got up and went to his father, but whilst he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. He saw him. His father saw him as he was coming, and his his heart was filled with compassion for him, filled with compassion for him, and he started absolutely legging it for him. He legged it towards his son. And he starts these rehearsed lines. I, I'm no longer worthy. All the things he'd written down on a, the back of a fag packet to try and say to his dad how sorry he was. And he just he cuts him off and says, I don't care about any of that stuff. Forget that stuff. I love you. Get the best robe. Get the ring on his finger. Get the fattened calf. It's time to party because my son was dead and now he's alive. This isn't just a nice reunion of a relationship that's restored. This is from death to life. This is the journey that we are on. This is the journey that the son was on. My son was dead and now he's alive. Flick on through uh, three chapters down to Luke 18. And this time we have a scene. It's not a story by Jesus. It's it's something he's going to demonstrate. And he's walking to a city called Jericho and a blind man is begging on the side of the road. And he can hear all this commotion. He obviously can't see it, but he can hear all the stuff that's going on. And he's trying to figure out what what is this. Um, And he asks what's happening. And the people around him say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That's the moment the ears prick up. Something interesting is happening. Jesus of Nazareth, I've heard of him. He kind of does stuff. He sees things happen. He claims to be God. What's going on? And this is where we pick up the story. So the blind beggar says this. He called out at Jesus, son of David, have compassion on me. Have compassion on me. Just pause there for a second. That word compassion, because we're now in the New Testament, we're now in the Greek. That Greek word for compassion, elio, if you're wondering, Elio is actually what those two words that we saw in Hebrew, Racham, Wichanan, jammed together in one word, to suffer with. That's what that compassion means. So he's saying, have compassion on me. I know that you are Yahweh because he's saying you're the son of David. I know who you are. Would you have that same compassion that you said in the scriptures that you were? Would you have that on me right now? Um, have compassion on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have compassion on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And, And he said, Lord, I want to see. The most simple request you could possibly imagine for where he's at right now. I just want to see. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Incredible response. And he's healed. He follows Jesus. It says that he follows Jesus with his life. It says he follows Jesus. And the people around who were all cynical, they now start praising God, which of course they're going to do that. They've seen this remarkable thing. They were the cynics at the beginning saying, shut up. Why are you doing all this stuff? Why are you disturbing this, this beautiful moment of Jesus Nazareth coming through? And then he sees this. They all see this beautiful miracle taking place, the compassion of God in action. And they praise God. What other response is there? Um, Jesus stopped. What do you want? He's got a heart of compassion. 
receive your sight, your faith has healed you. It's just a pure act of grace. And this is the hinge moment for us, because until now it feels a bit conceptual. It's like God is compassionate and gracious, that's great. But what, is it, what does it look like? What does it feel like for us to inhabit this, for us to model this, for us to mirror this as a community? And I think this is what Jesus models, and it's not going to be a surprise given the stories that we've just been reading. He has a heart of compassion, and then he acts out of grace, pure acts of grace. These two things come continually together. Just remember with Moses, I've seen the misery of my people, heart of compassion, and I've come down to rescue them, act of grace. Yahweh, Yahweh, he's compassionate, heart of compassion, and he's gracious, act of grace. Prodigal son, a father was filled with compassion, heart of compassion, and he starts legging it to his son, act of grace. A blind beggar, Jesus stopped. He was filled with compassion. Heart of compassion, what do you want me to do? What can I do right now as an act of grace? And this is what we see of God and Jesus all the time. Jesus obviously being the very visible, um, everything that we know about God is seen in Jesus, right? And all he's doing all the time is he has a, he's moved to compassion and his actions of grace. Moved to compassion, actions of grace. Moved to compassion, actions of grace. These are the two, the two pedals of the bike, if you will, that are continually going. One doesn't come without the other. Like what Pete said earlier, that we can't separate the being and doing of God. He does these two things inherently. They happen all the time. He's filled with compassion, actions of grace. So, this is the God that we center our lives around. What a God. What does that mean for us? How do we inhabit some of this? How do we model and mirror some of this stuff? So we see a God who gives himself to this world. We see Jesus so in tune with the world around him. Um, there's this beautiful scene where he's coming into Jerusalem and he, he starts weeping over the city. A city that means in its name that it was a city of peace. And he sees that it's a city of anything but peace. He's weeping over the city. His heart is moved to compassion and he starts this journey towards the cross. The ultimate act of grace. This is what Jesus is inhabiting. We want to be a community with both of those hearts and actions. But here's the problem. If we're really honest... Both individually and corporately, if we're really honest, we're not quite there most of the time. Like, we don't do that. Either they're totally out of sync, or we don't really see either of them in our lives. That's the risk, right? If we're really honest, that's the problem for us. And I I don't know where you live. Many will live in King's Cross. Others will live around London. But there is so much pain, so much suffering, loneliness, chronic need around us. How aware of, of that are we? How aware of the suffering around us are we? And what do we do about that? These are the two questions for us. And here's the thing. We're not God. So we don't do those two things in tandem all the time. He's modeling what it looks like to do that. But we're not God. We're broken. So we don't do that. But I think there are some specific traps that we fall into. Some specific routes that we end up going down which lead to certain um, things that I, I think just harden our heart. And I want to name some of them so that we can spot them in our own lives. Here's the first one, is that we have the heart of compassion. We, we, we can feel all this stuff. Our heart breaks for the world around us, for the people around us. But we, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what those acts of grace look like, either because we just don't know or because we can't be bothered. There's all sorts of reasons, but we just don't know what to do with it. And I want to say that leads to sympathy. Here's the problem with sympathy, because sympathy actually sounds quite good. Sympathy drives disconnection. We love Brené Brown here at KXC. She always crops up every so often. And she says two things. She says empathy fuels connection because empathy is suffering with someone. It's understanding their suffering they're going through and suffering with them. That's what compassion is. Compassion. So much that you would be willing to suffer with someone. 
That's what empathy is, that it drives connection. Here's the problem with sympathy. Sympathy drives disconnection. Because here's what's happening when, when, we, when we're sympathetic. You're here, you see someone suffering, and you say, I'm so sorry about that. I wish that I could do something. And the problem is you, you immediately create a hierarchy. There's nothing that you can do about it. And sympathy ensues, and sympathy creates cynicism because you don't know what to do with the emotion that hardens your heart. That's the first problem. The second one is that we, out of duty for many of us, or because we just know it's the right thing to do, is that we, we want to serve people around us, and therefore we just get on and do it. But it's not linked to a heart of compassion. It's not an overflow of, of the Father's heart. And here's the problem with that, is you're just going to burn out. You're going to get really tired, because you're not drawing on the, on the resources of heaven, you're drawing on your own resources. And the problem here is that Jesus is no longer the saviour, you're the saviour. Whether you think you are or not, that's the problem here. And you're going to burn out. You're going to get really, really tired and your heart's going to get hard. And here's the third one. And I want to, again, there's no judgment here. I'm in the third one most of the time. And here's the problem with the third one is that we don't really have either. Like we don't have a heart. Our heart doesn't break for what's going on around us, the suffering that we can see all around us. And we're not doing very much about it. And here's the problem with that is you're just going to disconnect. You're going to disconnect from the community around you. You're going to disconnect from your relationships, disconnect from your neighbors, disconnect from your work colleagues, from wherever it is, at university, whatever that is. You're going to disconnect from them because that's the only option. We come back to a passage time and time again from Jeremiah 29 where it says, you need to wed yourself to the well-being of a city because only then when it succeeds, you'll also succeed. It's, It's that we're part of this living organism. And I want to suggest it's the same thing here. If, if we're not part of it, if we're not connected to it, if we don't have a heart for it and we're not um, part of it with our very lives and our actions, then we just become disconnected. There's no other route. And that hardens our heart. So when these things aren't in sync, our hearts are hardened continually, time and time again. And that's really, really painful. And don't get me wrong. Like, because we're broken, we often have to choose one of these first, right? So for some of us, we, we want to get a heart of compassion, and therefore we say, Lord, would you, would you do something in me? Would you stir up some of that in me? That my heart would break for my road, my street, um, the rough sleeper that I walk past on the way to work or the tube station, everything. What, whoever it is and whatever it is, would you do that? And you have to do that first and then work out what that act of grace looks like afterwards. That, that's totally fine. Or the opposite way around. For some of us, we know that our heart will follow the actions and disciplines that we put around us. That's also obviously totally fine and absolutely right. But the problem is when the distance between those two things gets too great, you won't be able to do anything except harden your heart. That's the problem. And we see a God who's totally in tandem with those two things all the time. Heart of compassion, acts of grace. Heart of compassion, acts of grace. They have to be in step. And we want to ask the question, then what what does it look like to keep these things in step? How do we foster this in ourselves or nurture it in our own lives? And I think, again, there are two things. One is just simply to to have intimacy with the Father. Like we catch a heart of compassion from our compassionate and gracious God. When we're close with him, when we spend time with him, when we sit in his presence and allow his spirit to come and speak to us and change us and transform us, he gives us a heart of compassion. And then the question is, what are you going to do about that? What do you do with that? And that's simply obedience. It's obedience to seeing what the need is around you and doing something with that. That's what we are aiming for. Now, Pete, a couple of weeks ago, he was um, talking about creativity, and he said, in order for us to be creative, we have to be in touch with our pain. 
We have to be aware of the own pain that we're trying to deal with in our lives. And Anna said something really similar last week about courageous community. She said, we have to be in touch with our vulnerability. Unless we're in touch with our pain and our vulnerability, we're never going to be able to be the fully alive, creative and courageous community that we were called to be. And I want to say something really similar for compassion, that we need to be in touch with our brokenness, with our own weakness, for our fragile selves. We have to be in touch with that. And Jean Vanier, many would have heard of Jean Vanier, um, who's, who's now very elderly, but he, um, he uh, set up hundreds of large communities, which are uh, communities around the world that are essentially communities of love for those who suffer with quite severe learning and, and dis- uh, disabilities. And they, they just love people back to life over the long haul. And I want to say there's two things about him which is interesting. One is he does this really well, and he's done it for a really long time. And that means he knows the heart of the Father and he knows how to do it sustainably and well over time. And he says this, he says, we don't know what to do with our own weakness except hide it or pretend it doesn't exist. How many of us can, rec- can, can resonate with that? So how can we welcome fully the weakness of another if we haven't welcomed our own weakness? We have to deal with our own weakness, our own brokenness, if we can expect to, to try and help other people deal with their own weakness, their own brokenness as well. And we've got a lot of weakness, individually, corporately, as a church, as a community, as a city, there's a lot of weakness. But I want to put my finger on, on just one um, that I think we particularly struggle with at KXC. And I say that but, because not everyone will struggle with that, but I certainly do. And I, if I struggle with it, I'm really hoping that other people struggle with it. Otherwise, this talk's really just for me. Um, and here's the lie that I think many of us believe. Here's the lie that the enemy would try and energize in us. Until I feel like I belong, I can't welcome another. Until I feel secure enough in the community, and let, let's not just make this about church, in the workplace, in the university, on the street that I live in, in the halls of residence, whatever it is, until I feel like I belong, I won't be secure enough to welcome another person. And, and I, I want to say that's just total rubbish. Many of us will have that a track playing on in our minds, and, and that's just not true. C.S. Lewis, um, he has this concept called the inner ring, and I'm almost certainly about to butcher it, um, but I'm going to have a go anyway. And he talks about this as we're all fighting for belonging. If you think about this, this ring on the screen, in the center of it is belonging, quote unquote, and I want to say it's, it's like faux belonging, it's not real belonging. But there's this group in the center of a community or a place of work or a street or whatever it is, um, where if I can get into that group, if I can like burrow my way in there, then I'm going to belong. And when I'm in that place, when I belong, when I'm calling all the shots, then I'm going to have the security to welcome other people into it. Then I can shoot out to whoever it is on the margins and help them in. And, and that's just not true. I'll tell you why. Because that group doesn't exist. That is a lie. That group does not exist. Instead, he says it's the total opposite. You belong. You belong because you're, you're one by the Father. Like we have a compassionate God who's given his son for you. You belong. Intimacy with the Father is available for you right now. That's where you belong. And from that security, from that place, then we can shoot out and we can draw people towards him. Not towards some fake version of belonging, but towards him. That's what it really looks like for us to do this. Well, we have to recognize that we belong. And for some of us, we just need to hit pause on the talk for a second. Forget the outworkings, forget what's about to happen in the ministry points, whatever. You just need to know that you belong. That the Father welcomes, that he welcomes you. He's seen you when you were still far off. 
and he's filled with compassion for you, and he starts legging it to you. You belong. That was intense. That was actually more intense than I was expecting. But anyway, um, there's a, in the New Testament, there's this beautiful vision of then what it actually looks like for us to do this, right? What do, we, what do we actually have to do? How do we do community really well? More than that, how do we then spill that out into the communities that we're a part of in the rest of the world? Like, how do we do this well? And a word that comes up time and time again, well over 100 times in the New Testament, both in the Gospels and in the letters by Paul, is this Greek word, alelon. Can you say alelon to the person next to you? Alelon. That's a nice one, isn't it? Alelon. It feels a bit nicer than the phlegmy, the phlegmy words. Alelon, which means it's translated as one another. And it comes up so many times, and here's just some of the concepts it comes up. It says, be at peace with one another. Don't grumble with one another. Have the same mind. Accept one another. Forgive one another, because when you sow division, you're going to hold grudges. And that's just divisive. That's not good. That's disruptive for community. Speak truth with one another, because words of truth are going to bring life. That's what words of truth do when said in love. Serve one another because it's going to stop any sense where you think community is all about you. It's not. It's all about him, and we model that with each other. Pray for one another because there's something profound about standing in front of the Lord together and asking for what his his heart is. That's what it means to pray with one another. Honor each other because a culture of honor means we're seeing each other as God sees us. Love one another. Just reflect the love of God. Now, don't bite one another is on there. I think there's probably a similarly profound reason why that's in there, but I'm not going to unpack that right now. Compassion, back on track, starts with us doing these things with one another, loving one another, caring for one another, being with one another. And from that place, the overflow of that is that the world would know our compassionate God. It starts with each other, and out of that flows our neighbor, our colleague, the rough sleeper by the station, the barista, the person walking to you, walking past you on the street, the bus driver, your family member, your friends. It, it starts with each other and it spills out this culture of compassion and a heart of compassion. Now, I oversee our compassion ministries and projects that we do here at KXC, and there's an obvious landing to this talk, which is um, here are all of our projects and ministries. This is what it looks like for us to be compassionate as a community. Come on, church. Let's do it. Let's change the culture around us. Let's transform King's Cross. Sign up for one of them if you could do that in the next 20 minutes because you're going to forget if you don't. All of that stuff. And I just want to be really honest and upfront and just say I, I have no interest in getting you to sign up to projects. I have no interest in that unless that's going to be helpful for you. If that's going to be helpful for you and as part of you exercising those acts of grace, just hit pause on that for a second and ask the Father that he would fill you with the heart of compassion. What I care passionately about is that we are a compassionate church in the everyday, that we're seeing this stuff, that we're influencing the culture, the workplaces, the universities around us because we have a heart of compassion and we cannot help but move to action. We cannot help but move to acts of grace. We need intimacy with the Father and we need to act out of obedience. But there are two reasons, having said all of that, that I think some of the projects, ministries that we do are are amazing and are important. And you're going to hear about some of them next week. So we've got Vision Sunday next week where Pete's going to be sharing a bit of vision for the the, um, upcoming year. But he's also going to be talking about some of the stories of what we've seen happen. And and that's going to be the place for some of those stories. I'm not going to go into that right now. 
um, and you're going to see that the creativity that people have had and the entrepreneurial spirit, the courage to give up jobs, the sacrifice that they've made, being led by heart and then seeing stuff happen. You're going you're to hear all of that and that's all, all amazing. But I want to say two things. There's two reasons we do it. The first is, is really simple. That over years, over 10 years, people in this church, people like me, people like you, have been asking to see King's Cross in the way that the Father sees it. They've been asking for a heart of compassion for King's Cross. What would it look like if the kingdom came in King's Cross? What are the places that God is asking us to be obedient to, to act so that we might see more of his kingdom? That's the reason some of these things exist. It's not like a, we're just trying to get you to sign up to it so that you're getting doing something and the church has an impact. We care passionately about God's kingdom coming in King's Cross. And people have been praying over years. What would it look like to have a heart of compassion for King's Cross? How does he see it? How does he see it? And the second is this, is that for some of us, we, we have that heart of compassion, but we just don't know what to do with it. And this is a, is a place to exercise some of those acts of grace. It has to lead to action. And, you, and for some, we just don't know what that vessel looks like. We don't know how to catch it. Well, these are some really simple, some really practical ways that we as community, which is really fun to do together, can serve this part of London that we are in. And I want to just finish with two really simple stories. And I just want to caveat this at the beginning by saying I've got some pride here because um, what you really want to shoot for in these moments are like the incredible transformation stories. The like website quotes with the video and everything of just like incredible breakthrough, amazing things. And, And we probably could do some of that. And yet I feel like we just need to make this normal. We need to make it every day. We need to make it in the mundane almost that we can do this at any place at any time. So I just want to share two really simple stories so that we can get to grips with what this tangibly looks like. The first was yesterday we were out with the guys from Causeway Coast. Um, yesterday and I was, I was paired with Emma, who's part of the morning service. And we were just walking around um, King's Cross just asking for, for God's eyes, what he would want to say over certain people, what he sees over certain people, what would he want to encourage other people that it would be great to draw them towards who Jesus is, all of that kind of stuff. And, and we'd been, it had been going great So the first hour We'd seen some amazing encounters, prayed for some brilliant people, seen some breakthrough and some stuff. And then we kind of hit that break where you're like, I'm actually a little bit tired now. Should we get a coffee? It'd be nice to get a coffee. It's down tools time. You're, you're not really switched on to what God's saying, all that kind of thing. Let's just grab a coffee. So we're queuing up in this coffee shop, and there's a lady who's behind the till. She's not making the coffee. She's just behind the till. And we both said to each other, do you just feel this thing about her? Like she, she needs to be encouraged in some way. I don't know, quite know what it is. And what God started to do with us was fill our hearts with compassion for her. And he was saying, I just, I just really simply want, to, want you to say to her, um, she's amazing at what she does. She's loved, she's seen, she's known, she's just great at what she does. Now, we don't know her. She might be terrible at what she does. But what we felt was that the father saw her and said, you're good at what you do. You're amazing at what you do. So we, we got up, we ordered the coffees and said, just to hit pause, can we just say, you don't know us, but I just think you're actually amazing at what you do. Like we're from this church and we're asking God to all of that kind of stuff and said, so we just feel like he, he want, he's, he's pinpointed you to us and we just want to say you're amazing at what you do, you're loved, you're seen, you're known. And she started welling up, it turns out the last couple of days had been rough for her. And it was just this really profound moment where she was seen. She was seen. Really, really normal. And the, and the thing is, many of us might have those feelings about someone or we might ask for those feelings about someone um, and then we just don't know what to do. Maybe we've we kind of got a bit of pride or we've got a bit of 
um, whatever it is that gets in the way. What's the act of obedience, the really simple act of obedience that you might share what the Father would be saying over someone. The second is um, just a really simple story again from Dan and, and Neha, who lead our CAP team, CAP Islington team, in partnership with a few other churches. And um, they do lots of amazing things. Again, many in the room will serve with CAP and go along to visits. But one of the really simple things they do is debt counseling, where they, they go along on visits to understand a really practical need, like where there is debt in someone's life. What, what would it look like for us to help them really practically with things like budgets? Things like calling the debtors at the right times and the right places, all that kind of stuff. And they walk alongside people as they do that. And there was this lady that they were, they'd started doing that with who lives locally, an elderly lady who um, is cared for by her son. And the reason she's cared for by her son is she has really extreme agoraphobia and anxiety. She hasn't, other than being to the doctor, she hasn't been out of her house in 10, 15 years. And just picture that just for a moment for those who are in the room just to have 10, 15 years of that kind of isolation, other than your son coming and caring for you, is, is really quite amazing. And um, they saw this lady. So they, they started doing the really practical things and serving her in the way that they do with Kat. And they have the privilege of being able to pray for her, but they saw her. Their hearts broke for this, this lady. And they were able to speak life into her, speak encouragement into her. They were able to pray into some of the stuff that she was struggling with. And her eyes lit up. Like over the course of two or three visits, she has, has totally transformed as a person. She's still got all the same struggles that she has, but her demeanor has changed because they've seen her. It would be easy to do a session and then walk away, get the budgets done and go to the next person. They saw her. They've bought her shopping. They know that she's going to need some of that pure acts of grace. They see her. They have a heart of compassion for her. And they've bought her things, acts of grace. It's a beautiful relationship that started with, with her. You and I were made to be compassionate. That we were made for actions of grace. We were made to change the temperature of the culture around us. To bring the compassion of the Father. Why is that? Because you and I were made in the image of a compassionate and gracious God. That is who we were made in the image of. We're called to see where is the compassion needed. We're asked to have a heart filled with compassion that we would go and see the change that God is calling us to do, that we'd be obedient to that. Why don't we stand?